Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But she's our guest, singer-songwriter Emma Swift. Today and tomorrow, and yesterday too, the flowers are dying like all things do. Follow me close. I'm going to Bali Nali. I'll lose my mind if you don't come with me. I fuss with my hair and I fight blood feuds. I contain multitudes. Very, very beautiful. Why did you choose that, Emma? I'm absolutely in love with that song. (laughs) (laughs) I've been a a, a massive fan of I Contain Multitudes since Dylan first released it. Uh, It's enchanting. It's a beautiful meditation on the redemptive power of art. It's a love song. It's tragicomic, like the best things are, and that's why I chose it. I remember the first time I heard it, I thought, as always with Dylan, there's something confusing in the second line. I still don't know how to pronounce it. I know it's a place in Ireland. Balinali. Yeah, Balinali. I also loved Fuss With My Hair. Did you say he's Mm. fussing with his hair? (laughs) I adore that. I love it. I love a man with attention to detail about his hair. Come on. Clearly. (laughs) But, I mean, your cover came out very, very soon after Dylan's. What was the time frame? Basically, I heard the song and immediately asked my partner, Robin, to start learning how to play it on guitar (laughs) to decipher the chords Mm -hmm. because there weren't any charts or Mm. anything like that shared Mm. on the internet at that time. And then I began the task of working out what the lyrics were Mm. and then cross-referencing what I thought they were with what I could find online. Mm -hmm. And then I began recording it. And uh, we did 27 takes... (laughs) And I sent it to my record producer and said, "Okay, I think 27 is the magic number. I think we've finally got this down. And he put it together, added a few small things, and then we put it on the Blonde on the Tracks record. I was really... There's almost no firsts in the world world of covering Bob Dylan. So to be able to record I Contain Multitudes, a song that I was deeply emotionally, or am deeply Mm. emotionally connected to, to get in there before anybody else. Yeah. (laughs) It felt quite magical and special. I felt like that was a perfect gift from Bob Dylan at the perfect time. And the gift keeps on giving, because when we saw you at the Troubadour earlier on in the summer, you know, I know your album really, really well, and, you know, I was expecting all the songs from it, and I forgot about that one. And when it started, I was so caught off guard, and so I love it so much, and I love what you do with it so much. And then I realised that... The last time I'd been to the Troubadour was just before lockdown. I went to see Michael Gray do a talk there. And I thought, God, I Contain Multitudes didn't even exist then. It was all so new and so fresh and so potent. When you got to the end of hearing it the first time, how did it make you feel? I cried. I just find it so incredibly moving. And it's the way that it's sort of quite frank, I think, for Dylan, almost confessional. And I'm a big fan of confessional poetry. I mean, in that song, it's obviously the Walt Whitman reference, and Mm -hmm. he also references Edgar Allan Poe. But I'm a fan of Robert Lowell and Sylvia Plath and artists like that, uh, Mm -hmm. Frank Mm O'Hara. I like that particular language. And to me, that's what I felt Dylan was doing. He was saying something about his life, but in that very intertextual way that he does so well. Yeah. And it's a curtain raiser to the album, which, of course, none of us knew when we heard the song and when you sang it. 
it's I've got that right, haven't I? It is the first track on Rough and yeah. Rowdy Ways. Good, yeah. yeah. I'll be thrown out of the Dylan fan club for that one. <laughs> but it feels like a perfect announcement of intention. This is yes. me. I'm complex. I have influences. It's I love it. Yeah, I, I really love it too. And I mean, when I put together the Blonde on the Tracks album, I was trying to piece together a kind of autobiography of my own from Dylan songs, which is why when you listen to the record, it doesn't feature any of Bob Dylan's great storytelling songs mm. like Hurricane mm. or it's very much songs that could be interpreted as a confession mm. of the heart and mm. mind and soul. There's always the eye at the front and centre of those songs, which has an intimacy, I think, that storytelling songs don't have. One of the lines that jumped out at me the first time I heard it was, I paint nudes. There's something about the way he says nudes that is so <laughs> kind of filthy. It just seems to me, he just, he really gets behind it and chucks it in your face. At least that's how I heard it. Yes, absolutely. And uh, alongside, I drive fast cars and I eat fast food. <laughs> yeah. um, I just think that that's glorious. I mean, it's so, it's so, like I said, it's just that tragicomic thing embedded in that song. Yeah. I mean, I chuckled very hard when I first heard I'm just like Anne Frank, like Indiana Jones. <laughs> no. It's a brilliant no. juxtaposition. Oh, and but, that's what, I mean, I'm into astrology, so I mean, I could talk all day about Bob Dylan being a Gemini and how that multitudinous Gemini aspect of the the highbrow and the lowbrow and the real and the fantastic sitting side by side in that song is just so very what, fun. What did you make of when he said those British bad boys, the Rolling Stones? <laughs> Again, I mean, I was bouncing off the walls. I could, I'm pretty bad when I, when I hear Dylan songs the first time. I, I tend to close up a bit. It takes me a while to mm. uh, really accept them on their own terms. I mean, just that's just the way I'm built. And I'm a Gemini. But when I heard those British bad boys, the only sons, I went, what? You can't say that. <laughs> something about it just... just oh, and, yes. and within Anne Frank. Within, you know, you just said Anne Frank. And now you're saying, not just the Rolling Stones, you're saying those British bad boys. But again, now I sort of, I, I, I've opened myself to it. But I mean, I don't know what, how did, <laughs> did that just make you laugh? Yeah, I mean, it's all intensely amusing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I think of a real rebel, I think of Mick Jagger prancing across the stage. Mm. <laughs> it's a... It's brilliant stuff. But I remember he did, somebody did, I think, did they ask him about it when he, they said, so Anne Frank, what, what, how, where, you know, because it's all, it's all very sort of about art, it seems to be about music, about poetry. And then, you know, Anne Frank is, is so, so emotive from, a, of a different world. And I think he's, because I think he did do an interview and he said, I just was thinking of Anne Frank. Yeah, mm. and I'm a confessional writer, famed, yes, for, famed for keeping a diary. Mm -hmm. This is true. We went to see you in, in concert a, a little while ago. It seemed like you were doing little conferences uh, with Robin uh, Hitchcock uh, and Davy Lane, who were uh, backing you up. And 
the conference before The Man and Me was a particularly intense one. I don't know if you remember it, because you've done a lot of Dylan gigs, right? And Robin was sort of riffing and, and, and playing chords and, and doing different sort of time signatures and things. And you were saying, no, no, more like this. And uh, he said, oh, you mean reggae? And you said, no, <laughs> not reggae. <laughs> And then it was, it started in a very sort of Dylan-esque kind of way. Like, you could really tell that nobody knew where it was going. Mm. And uh, it was fabulous. And then at the end, you sort of announced that you wouldn't be doing it like that again. <laughs> it was a bit of a wreck, but it was, it was glorious. Oh, good. That's what, uh, that's I, what I thought. I, I love to, you know, create a bit of chaos on stage for the audience amusement. Uh, I mean, playing music with Robin is fun and hilarious and he's also my partner so I can talk to him in a way that I would never dare talk to another musician on stage (laughs) so uh, we have a lot of fun with it and uh, I think he gets very anxious about playing the man in me because it's sort of a bit of light relief compared to the other tracks that I selected for that album Mm, and he doesn't really quite know how to change gears Uh to get inside that song. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've just played 12 shows back to back, so I think we've actually worked out the man in me by now. (laughs) If you're listening to this and thinking, oh gosh, that car accident sounds terrible, I never want to see it play. (laughs) I think we've worked it out. No, No, but I I think it was great that you didn't work it out. I I mean, just as a song, I think it's a really interesting song. I'm I'm a a huge fan of uh, of New Morning as Mm -hmm. an album. And it's weird. I've I've heard... um, a red commentary on that song saying that it's uh, sexist. And I, how does it speak to you or through you? I approached the song as a kind of Jungian project. <laughs> I'm very into Carl Jung <laughs> and uh, I listen to a lot of Jung-related podcasts. <laughs> and I thought you were saying a lot of his musical gigs. It's about... It's Is about, there one called Forever Young by y- the chance? Yeah, <laughs> not that I know of. <laughs> to me, it's about the integration of the uh, male and female mm. aspects of the self. Uh, for me, very much when I was doing these Bob Dylan songs, part of it was about a lack of confidence in mm. my own songs and putting... Seeing Bob Dylan songs, it's like wearing a, a magical cape. Mm. Suddenly, you have special powers mm. because the work is already brilliant. And whether you rise to the occasion or fail, it doesn't really matter. The criticisms of the work, they can criticize the performance, but you can't really criticised the song. Yeah, that's Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. That's not very good, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Not going to say that. That's right. I mean, mean, and and people do criticise Dylan and say that he's not very good, of course, but those people are wrong. (laughs) (laughs) They're also not listening to this podcast. (laughs) Compared to some of the other songs on the album, you do some of the great classics like Simple Twist of Fate, where people generally rate that in like, as like a top 10 Bob Dylan song. Unless you grill Marcus, who doesn't. When he reviewed my album, he really liked it, actually, which mm, is very did, nice yeah. of him. Yeah. But he, was, he sort of questioned, why do Simple Twist of Fate? But I think that's, there's so many Bob Dylan songs, and I'm not actually not too interested in ranking the songs mm. or being too academic mm. about it mm. or trying to find an exact meaning for things because I think that art is open to interpretation. Mm. There's no one opinion 
about a song that is more right than another. No. And, I mean, I guess that's all I'll say about that. It's not really yeah. why I listen to the music of Bob Dylan or listen to music of Lou Reed or Joni mm. Mitchell. Or I'm not a good list keeper or anything mm. like that. And I also don't stand by anything I say. <laughs> um, I can, You know, I can sit here and say to you both, I love Visions of Johanna. It's yeah. the best Bob Dylan song of all time. And you could have me back on the podcast in six weeks and I'd say... I never said that. Yeah. The, be the best Bob Dylan song of all time is Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. Yeah. In three years, I might decide that it's Key West. Music's supposed to do that, yeah, I think. It it's supposed to mean things in different ways depending on where you are when you find it. Um, I also think you find elements of those songs that had clearly always been there but have been somehow unmined. There's the... The, the, my favourite moment on the entire album is is the pause you leave in the middle of sooner or later one of us must know didn't know that you were saying goodbye for good and now mm. that has always been there but when I heard your version I suddenly thought oh fuck no I, this is different emotional terrain mm. now I can feel the hurt in that that was brand new to me oh good the songs are so rich mm. so open to interpretation mm. and. To me, that's my, my job. My job is yeah. to give the songs a, a slightly different twist, not mm. by giving them a reggae feel or <laughs> making them a heavy metal extravaganza, but just to maybe bring a different emotional angle. I mean, interpreting a song, I think, is much like being an actor. My Hamlet's going to be different to your Hamlet. Yeah. I was, well, I was saying this to Kerry just earlier on, but over the weekend I heard Brandy Carlyle's cover of Hallelujah, mm -hmm. which I never thought I would, would want to hear that song done by anyone else ever again. And my wife and I listened to it in the car and were just utterly blown away because she somehow took this song that has been done to death and in that way, like an actor does, made these very old, familiar words seem like they were just coming out of her mouth for the first time and that is really something to be able to do that i think that if you're covering a song if you can't make it sound like it's being done for the mm. first time it's not the right song to be singing and when i was putting the album together there are plenty of dylan songs i tried on for size beforehand that i just couldn't get to work an example of that is Sweetheart Like You from Infidels. Mm -hmm. I have very strong, passionate feelings about 80s Bob Dylan uh, and that album. I just adore it. I'm a kid of the 80s. Yeah. Of course I'm drawn to that record. Mm -hmm. Of course I'm magnetised by that particular album. But when I went to make the Blonde record, I just hadn't got quite inside Sweetheart Like You. Mm. And now, having spent a few more years kind of needling away at it I think I can do it but it took time Funnily enough, our previous guest uh, Caroline Bird, after we finished recording the podcast, she said I didn't even get on to Sweetheart Like You mm. I could do like an hour on Sweetheart Like You That's what I, I, mean, I mean, this is a crass question but I mean, what, what attracts you to Sweetheart Like You? They say that patriotism is the last refuge to which a scoundrel clings I think that that line, after the last six or seven years of yeah. American politics, being a green card resident of mm. the United States, mm. has a profound emotional resonance that it didn't have quite as much before. It was always a hefty line, but now the weight of it is 
gigantic. And that's what makes that song special to me. I think sometimes the best songs slowly reveal themselves over time, and that yeah. one certainly has. I hope it's Nigel Farage's favourite Dylan song as well. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, Samuel Johnson said some pretty silly things, but that's a really good line, that one. And, yeah. and speaking of the States, and I know you were living in Nashville, and uh, and you've lived in both America and, and the UK, clearly there's a huge difference, but is there a big difference in playing music in both countries? Absolutely. Very big difference. But I couldn't tell you quite what it is yet. Mm. I haven't really played in England altogether too much. Right. I've played in America a lot more. Well, what's the community like, say, in... Oh, in East... I, I know nothing about East Nashville aside from uh, Todd Snyder's album, East Nashville Skyline. Okay. Uh, uh, so, East Nashville... Very creative, vibrant community in Nashville, Tennessee, which is a blue city in a red state for some context. Hmm. When I moved to Nashville, I was walking down the main street of East Nashville, which is called Woodland Street. And there is a gigantic studio there with Woodland Studios written in beautiful font. And that's owned by Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings. Mm -hmm. That's where they make all of their albums. They're fantastic people, brilliant Bob Dylan fans as well. And that, to me, sort of sets the tone of the whole neighbourhood. Mm. And it's a place where people have great reverence for the craft of songwriting. And so it's a nerd's paradise. You know, you go to the bar there and everybody just wants to talk about music all the time and you can get into quite heated debates about the best Neil Young record at the grocery <laughs> store if you want to and I'll say oh today for me it's tonight's the night and someone else will say oh no but I like Harvest and I'd go well no but I like the Ditch trilogy and then yeah. it'd nerd out from there or Springsteen or Gillian Welch or Joni Mitchell mm. or Nina Simone Everybody there is obsessed with music making, and it's a bit of a, a wonderland, really. God, I'd love a That's grocery store where I get to argue about the, the Ditch trilogy with, with somebody. That would be, well, you, <laughs> be kind you of go, You go into the grocery store, and everybody already looks like they're an extra from the last waltz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite amusing in, in that way. Presumably it's quite a small community. It sounds just East Nashville. I have no idea. I mean... Is it a mile square or I, I have no idea how big it is? I'm not great with facts. Yeah. <laughs> my attention to detail is not my strong suit, so I couldn't really tell you. But, I mean, the particular part of East Nashville, I think, that you're thinking of mm. is it based around an area called Five Points, which would be in, if you were living in England, you might think Shoreditch. Or, right, that's what I'm trying to figure yeah, Or okay. Camden. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. It's got that sort of quite specific geographical... Mm. And has it been like that for a while? Uh, or did it become like that in the 60s? Do you, do you know anything about the history of the area? I'm not really an expert, yeah. to be honest. I mean, I think that in it's certainly blown up in the last 20 years in terms of popularity. And um, a lot of musicians moved to Nashville to make a go of it. I mean, people have always come to Nashville to make records. Bob Dylan, R.E.M. It's a place where people want to make albums because there's a standard there that is very high. And you have a lot of working session musicians there who 
are master craftsmen. They can lay tracks down so fast and so good. And so that's what brings people there. But I've only been there since 2011, so I'm not, I'm not really an expert. We're going backwards here, but I want to know about the bit before that as well. So when, t- tell us about the years before that. Oh, the years before that. Okay, so I grew up in Australia, mm. and my accent is now really confused because I lived in Tennessee for 10 years, and I married a British person, and I'm a singer, so I just mimic whatever is going on around me. Mm. But I grew up in Australia, and I grew up in various country towns. My parents were school teachers, mm. so we travelled around a lot for their work, but I was born in Sydney and I went to university in Sydney. So I think of Sydney as my home. It's where my friends are. It's where I hang out. It's where I first got into going and seeing live bands. Mm. I skipped my first day of my final year of high school to go to an Elvis Costello concert in Sydney by myself. (laughs) I got the bus and I, I (laughs) I think of Sydney as the place where my creative life really began to flourish. Yeah. Now, how did you end up in the States? I'm a compulsive dreamer, and I really, I went on a road trip in the United States in a very cliche way with a girlfriend of mine. We rented a silver convertible like Thelma and Louise and Mm. drove it through the desert. And I just wanted to try it on for size. I really like the way that in America there is that kind of encouragement of pursuing your dreams that isn't so much the case in Australia or Britain. I think of those places as more, don't get too big for your boots. Mm. But in America, it's this land of opportunity where in New York, New York, it's if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. But Mm. more broadly, I think artistically of America is that kind of place. Mm. And I'm not the only singer-songwriter to do that. Mm. I mean, there's a reason why Neil Young moved to California. Joni Mitchell moved to Mm. California. There's a reason why that Graham Nash. There's something energetically that magnetizes artists to the place. We haven't asked this, but I am genuinely interested. We do tend to ask people, when was the first time you heard Bob Dylan? Well, I guess, I mean, he was always around. My parents, big music fans, big record collection. And I think that the first time I consciously remember taking in Bob Dylan was when the Travelling Wilburys were together because I was eight Mm. and they were in the charts. And it was at the age of eight that I started to pay attention to the top 40 and I started taping songs off the radio. So I had a cassette that was just the B-52s, songs of theirs that I'd recorded from the Cosmic Thing album that I'd got from the radio. And uh, I noticed Bob Dylan in that band along with Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne and mm. George Harrison and Roy Orbison, and hearing Roy Orbison's voice for the first time when you're a little girl who mm. likes to sing is quite special. So I think I kind of thought of him as some kind of Bob Dylan as some kind of curmudgeonly uncle type guy because <laughs> he always looked like the grumpiest one in the music video. Well, also, if, if you, yeah, if you think about that album, there's the purity of Roy Everson and then there's, you know, Tweedy the Monkey Man. And then well, hard up for cash. They stayed mm. off all night selling cocaine and hash <laughs> yeah. to an undercover cop who had a sister named Jan. For reasons understood, she loved the Monkey Man. I, yeah, I, you know, I, 
I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, obviously. And, you know, that's another song. Like, I just adore Tweeter yeah. and the Monkey I'd Man. I'd love to hear your version of Tweeter and the Monkey <laughs> yeah. Man. I'd encourage you to do that, please. Oh, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> wow, uh, a lost classic, you know. Yeah. Who's ever covered Tweeter and the Monkey Man? Anyone? <laughs> no, Bruce Springsteen really should. <laughs> it would be fantastic if it? Springsteen did. Yeah. And, uh, but I think that once I became a teenager and I started to have those intense emotional romantic feelings, and the desire and the yearning to become an artist and to write poems and to write songs, that's when I truly became enchanted with Bob Dylan and started going back and taking his records in and clutching yeah. them and putting them on my old LP player. And, and did you feel a real kinship with Infidels because that was the first one released after you were born? Did you say this is a piece of me or anything like that? I think so. I mean, I think it was also, we're talking the late 90s and the early 2000s mm. here, and so vinyl albums weren't that easy to acquire, not when you're living in the country anyway. No. It was sort of more, the albums came to me in a way that I think is very fated. It was, oh, look what I found at the thrift store. It's infidels. Yeah. Yay! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I think is nice. So we sort of have death by options now. I think Bob Dylan, if I was 18 now and trying to get into Bob Dylan, I'd feel a little bit overwhelmed with the vastness. Absolutely. There's cool. all the outtakes albums now as well. Yeah. And in a way, it was nice to have that sort of, ooh, this is what I've got today. I'll try it on. Because <laughs> I'm a real love at first sight person. No, it's true. And I'm that way inclined yeah. with music. I mean, I think it's so exciting. There's all of these young people at the moment who are suddenly discovering Kate Bush. How brilliant that is. I am envious in a very loving an excited way mm. of the 15-year-old kid who watches a show on Netflix, hears Kate Bush, is blown away, yeah. and then has this wonderland of music to go and explore. To be able to go and think, oh, great, now here's Wuthering Heights, mm. here's Cloud Busting. It's how fabulous. I mean, we live in this era where a lot of estates and record companies are thinking, how can I keep my artists relevant? You know, I mean, if you go and see Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, for example, clearly, and I loved it, but clearly the objective of that film is to make Elvis Presley fashionable to people under 30 because no one knows who he is anymore and everyone's forgotten. And yet nothing that cynical happened with Kate Bush. I don't, I don't think, I mean, OK, she was in a Netflix series, but I mean, what it provided is this wonderfully spontaneous moment where, as you say, someone discovers it just naturally and then and then digs a little bit deeper, you know? I, I was really surprised when we talked to John Doe a couple of uh, episodes back, um, whose uh, singing voice was used in uh, I'm Not There. I was surprised when he said he considered that film to be kind of a, a flop, which I never did because I thought it was so... I thought it was completely wonderful, but maybe I've never looked into it financially. You know, it was certainly wasn't like the Elvis film in that it wasn't playing all summer at your no. local theater. You, you had to seek it out. But I suppose when you're into Bob, you don't think about whether the film is a success or a financial success or, or whatever. I think when you're into art, financial success is absolutely irrelevant. I don't really need for things to have enormous popularity for me to 
love them. It's it's never the measure of whether a work is of quality to me. I haven't seen the Elvis film yet, but I have been to Graceland twice. <laughs> and twice. Well, I mean, twice. twice. Because if something's good once, you should do it again. <laughs> I've only been once, and it just I've seemed like once, the most yeah. dark and kind of uh, <laughs> depressing place. And I mean that in an interesting way. I, I could I could see. Elvis's personality because he was just surrounded by darkness and possessions and I mean did that change second time? Well for me the first time I went I went with my partner Robin mm-hmm. Hitchcock and we both love music and just going and and watching him speak on the little televisions that they have in as part of the tour yeah. and just seeing how enchanting charismatic utterly gorgeous he was that was really delightful and going and seeing his outfits and I've been to the Prince Museum as well there's something about going and and seeing the clothes that people wore and what how an artist chooses to present themselves Mm. on the stage because it's a costume it's like a hat you put it on and you go from being Elvis Presley the man to Elvis Presley the yeah, you know, the, the, 68, the legend. Yeah, leather mm. suit. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. man, I love a man in a leather suit. I mean, what's <laughs> not to love? Utterly gorgeous. Has Dylan ever worn a leather? He, I, we've I've not seen enough. him in leather trousers. <laughs> uh, there is. I asked you yeah, exactly. I asked somebody once. Um, has Dylan never been known to wear leather trousers? And they sent me a picture of Dylan oh, in leather in trousers. In the eighties, and Emma will know this. In yeah, the when 80s, he was in his rock, his leather trousers. He was very leather. leather glove. He was very leathery. A little earring. Now he's just pure leather. His <laughs> skin has just, just become leather. But uh, that's interesting about the Prince. Is that in in uh, Minneapolis? It is in Minneapolis. I didn't even know that there was a Prince. Museum. I mean, you're talking about Paisley Park. or Paisley Park has been turned into a place that fans can go and visit. And as you say, it goes back to that legacy of how do we preserve this artist mm. and keep them going for years to mm. come. And one of the ways that people can do that is to create the museum. So Paisley Park is a museum. Mm-hmm. Um, Dolly Parton has Dollywood. Uh, Dolly Parton also has this brilliant book program called the Imagination Library, and every child born in Tennessee gets sent free books because her father never knew how to read. And so she wants people in Tennessee to be literate. So how's that for securing new fans, though? Every child in Tennessee up until the age of five gets books delivered from Dolly Parton, so they all know her. Oh, that's fabulous. I didn't know that. That's brilliant. God. When we went to see you at the Troubadour, the thing that really surprised me was that you smiled when you were singing Bob Dylan. (laughs) (laughs) And you smiled sort of most of the time. The smile was different depending on the song. It occurred to me on the way home, I thought, I don't think I've ever even seen anyone smile when singing Bob Dylan. You know, like Joan Baez, when she sang Bob Dylan, she looked miserable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and and hugely reverent, you know. She probably has reasons for that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. No, but but even when they were together and things were going well, because she she looked more reverent than anything else. Mm. I found that very delightful because it spoke to a certain kind of irreverence and a certain delight. And I thought, I, I thought, oh, this is going to be a fabulous evening because I mean, when you first, I thought, oh my God, she's smiling. She's singing Bob Dylan and smiling. That, to me, was really surprising. I've got this voice, <laughs> this singing voice, that has a sad timbre. And I love to sing sad songs. I taught myself to sing listening to Linda Ronstadt records. There are no musicians in my family, so I'm self-taught. And 
I love those heartbreaking ballads, but I contain multitudes and I'm actually quite a happy-go-lucky, funny person in real life. And I don't think I, I used to smile as much on stage as I do now. And I think that part of that is when I'm doing it now, I am so profoundly grateful to have this job. And when that was taken away during the pandemic, we were in lockdown and I couldn't play live, I really grieved that. And it's no longer something that I would ever take for granted again. Singing on stage and being on stage is a joyous experience for me. Even if I'm about to sing an emotionally devastating song like Going, Going, Gone, or run a marathon, the marathon that is Visions of Johanna. And I think to be able to have both of those energies circulating on stage at the same time is when I know the show is going well. That to me is a good show. If people are laughing, but people are also engaged and sometimes crying and moved, that's why I do it. That's what it's all about. You were singing Visions of Johanna uh, when we saw you, and uh, and uh, Robin, I don't know if he says this every night, but Robin <laughs> said something like, that was the best... We've, Greatest we've, piece of music I've ever been involved yeah. in. He said, yeah, he didn't just say that was the best Visions of Johanna. <laughs> he said that was the best music I've ever been involved yeah, with. Yeah. I don't know, maybe he says that every night, but it was the, the audience went nuts. It was yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a glorious song to play, yeah. and it's his favourite Bob Dylan song. It's my favourite Bob Mm -hmm. Dylan song. You happened to catch us on a night where we're playing with our dear friend Davy Lane, Mm -hmm. the Australian musician, and there was an energetic movement between all three of us, again, of gratitude and Mm -hmm. joy and just getting completely caught up in the song. And I think that's really exciting as a performer, and I think that's probably what Robin meant though I'm glad that I'm glad that he likes my version of visions better than his own well you know exactly. <laughs> yes because I've I've yeah. heard his vision as a matter of fact I first met Robin uh, years ago at the uh, there was an evening at the Barbican a, a Dylan evening mm-hmm. and and he uh, did visions that evening so I mean I'm, and I know he he loves it and I've heard his his version but there's something about the the two guitars behind singing behind mm. you that as you say that was it just brought out the song, that's all you need is... you need an, an extra guitar makes all the difference. So when you saw that particular show in June of this year, mm. there was a certain set list. And then by the time I wrapped the recent tour in America, we'd also added Not Dark Yet. Sort of fun to do extra things here and there mm. and experiment. So the, the elephant in the room here, you've talked about Not Dark Yet, Sweetheart Like You... Visions Johanna. Are you going to record any more of these, do you think? I'd like to at some point, but I don't think I'll be doing it in the immediate future. And the only reason I say that is because I don't want to be pigeonholed as someone who Mm. only does Bob Dylan songs, even though there's a part of me that would absolutely love to just surrender to that. (laughs) (laughs) But there's loads of fantastic Dylan songs that I'd like to try Mm. and play. Like what? Just off the top of your head. 
Well, in the live set at the moment, we've been doing Mummy, You've Been On My Mind, which I really enjoy singing. We've been doing Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. I'd like to, again, going back to Infidels, I think something like Joker Man would be nice to try on for size. Maybe something from the Wilburys catalogue. That would be great. Because honestly, I don't think, has anyone ever done those songs? Maybe Jenny Lewis and the Watson Twins did to handle with care. Um, that is a great, yeah, because that's is, like a single. Which is quite is good. good yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, then, yeah, there's, I mean, rough and rowdy ways. I mean, Key West is, I'm glad that the whole rough and rowdy ways album hadn't come out when I was putting the finishing touches mm. on the Blonde record mm. because then I would have had too many choices mm. because there's too many good songs yeah. on it. I've made up my mind to give myself to you and Key West, I think, are both very emotionally resonant songs that would work with my vocal style. But whether I make my way to them or not mm. <laughs> remains to be seen. What about the way into these songs? I mean, what made you choose these songs in the first mm. place? I wanted to tell a story of my life through the songs of Bob Dylan and I'd been depressed and I had writer's block, which I've talked about before, about the release of the album. And so I was finding songs of his that were reflective and sad or at least open to interpretations in that way. So my version of Sooner or Later, One of Us Must Know, is not as um, acerbic as Dylan's version. It's a more pensive mm. take and um, my version of You're a Big Girl Now is more like a conversation I might be having with myself rather than addressing to a potential loved one. So that's what I was attempting to do, really. And um, I think that that is what works for me. And so that's, if I were to record any more that's what I would be trying to do. I mean, that's why I love singing Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. It's a bitter, bitter song. And I like singing <laughs> <laughs> angry, bitter songs. And but giving them, embedding a kind of tenderness in them that's always been there, but Perhaps the listener can't pick up on that straight yeah, it, away. It occurs to me that I've, I mean, I've never <clears throat> sung a, a Dylan song, but don't think twice is all right. Even though he's been bitterly disappointed, he seems to be kind of centered in his anger. Yeah, goodbye's too good a word, babe, so I'll just say fare thee well. I Ugh. ain't saying you treated me unkind. You could have done better, but I don't mind. It's... <sighs> It's almost like an acting job in a way. I mean, I, I would love to play. I love to play powerful characters. And I like, I'm, I'm very attracted to possession of, of, you know, feeling centered and powerful. That's one of the reasons I think Dylan is, has always been. He's always been so powerful. Well, I think that's really interesting. That's a good observation to make because I would consider myself a bit of a people pleaser, which is a role that I'm trying to evolve out of. And when I'm singing these Dylan songs, not only am I powerful, but mm. I'm also a bit double-edged. <laughs> it's, mm, mm. Uh, and it's nice. Yeah, I can see it. I mean, literally can see it because I can see when you sing those songs. We've seen you sing those songs, you know, and you... It must be so difficult to, to step off stage having done an evening of Dylan songs and kind of... Do you feel 
transformed? Are you able to keep some of that power? Has being a sort of a Dylan interpreter given you a sort of a sense of, of your own power? It's given me a greater sense of confidence, I think, especially because when I landed on the idea for the project, it was coming from a place of vulnerability and I didn't really know that the project would ever see the light of day. And one of the reasons I procrastinated so much about putting the album out, because most of the album was recorded in 2017 and then just forgotten about, one of the reasons I put it off was a lack of confidence because I just got into a cycle of thinking that was thinking there's already too many Bob Dylan covers out in the world. Nobody needs this record. Nobody needs to hear these songs. What a fun experiment to go into the studio and make it. And then, of course, when I didn't have a touring music job anymore in 2020, I thought, you know what, I'll put the record on. And in my own modest lack of confidence way, I pressed 300 to vinyl and thought, that'll be great. If I can sell those 300 records, that will be fantastic. And I've sold 10,000 copies of Blonde on the Tracks and people seem to like it. And it's not why I made it, but it is lovely that people do. And, and it has brought a bit of confidence that wasn't there when and the also, project started. you managed to do it without playing any of the record business games too, didn't you? You completely willfully went against the tide of, of the record business and released it in a manner that you could control and that you wanted to do. And it worked, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not really interested in playing the record business game at all. No. I think that that would be a really quick way to sap the joy out of creating music. I'm I'm a big believer in... Music to me, you know, I'm, I'm lapsed Catholic. I'm not religious at all anymore. But I'm the oldest of seven children. I come from a multi-generational Catholic family. And while I no longer have that, I still have somewhere where this reverence has to go. And music, to me, is a spiritual place. If I'm playing a show, it has spiritual significance. If I'm going to a gig it has spiritual significance. It's the closest I get to going to church. As a fan, I join the congregation. I roll on up and I, you know, I go and see Bob Dylan or I went and saw LCD Sound System a, a week ago. Very, very different audience to Dylan's, but equally fantastic. And that's what it's about to me. And it's the only way to keep it pure is to not really think of the business too much. I think often music industry best practice is against the interests of the artists and the fans. And I think it'd be, we could have a really dull conversation now about Bruce Springsteen tickets. <laughs> so let's not do that. But, um... Dynamic pricing. Yeah. <laughs> but eventually it did make its way, presumably, I don't know how, into, I mean, it was... Uh, Rolling Stone, I can't remember, it, it rated it hugely high in the all-time best Bob Dylan. And like you said, Grill Marcus was, was very kind too. Yeah, so, you know. was that sort of word of mouth or did somebody get 
hold of how did that happen? I have a publicist. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in many ways, I participated in the music industry in a traditional way. I was Mm -hmm. just doing it like it was the year 2000 instead of the year 2020. So I didn't, I didn't really participate in, you know, I just, I created music videos for an MTV that no longer exists. (laughs) And I sold vinyl and CD and cassette and downloads and out it, out it went into the world. I mean, the measure of a good album is, is word of mouth in the end and not really being part of a fad. Good music should last for years and years and years. So hopefully there are still people who are just hearing Blonde on the Tracks for the first time and in years to come they'll hear it for the first time. And I'm also a deep Twitter nerd. People have some strong negative opinions about Twitter, but in many ways that particular platform is a very happy place for me because I follow a lot of Bob Dylan fans Mm. online there and get involved in all kinds of exciting conversations with people and see all kinds of humorous memes and (laughs) (laughs) and so it's nice and it's lovely I don't know if um if folks know this so much but anytime someone recommends the work of an artist particularly of an unknown artist like myself I don't have huge profile Anytime somebody shares that on social media, that's magic because it's just a lovely organic way of saying, hey, Mm. I like this. And um, it really helps. Is It Rolling Bob Talking Dylan is recorded back home in Studio 3 at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Roisin King and produced by Robin Guise. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. They threw everything at me, everything in the book. I had nothing to fight with but a butcher's hook. They have no pity. They never lend a hand. I can't sing a song that I don't understand. Goodbye, Jimmy Reed. Goodbye and good luck. I can't play the record because my needle got stuck.